Philippians chapter 2. Who in your home puts together all of the uh, toys for Christmas or if you get a you get a bicycle or a computer desk or whatever it, it, it might be. When you get something to put together, do you like pictures with the directions? I don't know about you, but whenever I get a set of directions, I don't read. I go to the picture and I begin looking at, uh, looking at the picture. So when you're putting together the computer desk, it comes with a diagram. I am very, I am very happy. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us with that with that same thing this morning in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Paul's letter to this selfless church can be, can be outlined in nine parts. And we're going to finish up part four today, his Christ-like exhortations. In fact, we're only going to be looking at verses 17 and 18. And that's actually a bridge to, to the fifth part, which is where Paul talks about his faithful companions in verses 19 through 30 which is why Ryan read all of that for us. This entire section follows Christ's ultimate example of humility. Back in verses 6 through 11, Christ laid aside the, the rights that, that he had. He didn't divest himself of, of, of any of his godness, but he laid aside the rights to exercise that. He came in the form of a man, a bondservant, and he humbled himself being obedient to the point of death. And because of that, God highly exalted him. So Paul gives us that, the theology, if you will. And then he makes application of that in, in two areas, which is what we've been looking at. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Uh, pursue holiness as God is holy. And then he tells us even more specific how we're supposed to do that. Don't grumble and complain as you pursue it. How many of you got an opportunity to apply last week's sermon? I told the 830 service, I got a chance to apply it on the way to church. Like, I'm going to preach the very next passage, and I, I come through a stoplight, and somebody is going really slow in front of me, and my first response is, come on, guy, you know? And that, wait a minute, I am, I'm, I'm going to preach the next, I've already forgot last Sunday. I need to go back and review that. Maybe you, maybe you had that opportunity this week. The headwaters of all of that teaching comes from verse 5. The headwaters of the river that we've been floating in, let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the the current bursts forth uh, like water from under a dam in verses 6 through 11. This, this picture of Christ's humble obedience on the cross. God's, God's exaltation of Him. And after that, then Paul makes an appeal to us to pursue holiness. And we're to do that without grumbling and complaining. And when you do both, you're a witness to a corrupt world. But now, further downstream... Paul's going to help us to see what, what that looks like. Paul makes application of Christ's humble obedience, and, and he gives us an example, three of them to be, to be exact. So we had the theology lesson, we had the general application, now he's going to give us three object lessons in the lives of three individuals to help us work that, that out. The living lessons are observed in the Apostle Paul's sacrifice, that's verse 17 through 11. Then we're going to see Timothy's selflessness and then Epaphroditus' service by the time we're done. We're only going to cover Paul this morning. And he's already given us the example of Christ. 
that's the original. And we know what, what, what he did. And so you say, why do we need the example of three, three other men? I mean, is Jesus not enough? Well, Jesus, of course, is enough. They're following Christ. We're encouraged to follow them as they, as they follow Christ. But are you not tempted at times to think, well, well that was Jesus. I mean, he was the, the Son of God. I can't do it exactly like, like he did. And so Paul follows up with three representations of, of, of ordinary believers living out this humble obedience of Christ. I mean, we all know that Jesus was humble. But how do we as his followers live out that I- I- example? What does it look like as his followers to imitate him in this humble uh, obedience? What does it look like when a man has the attitude of Christ in him? And Paul shows us here. These are personal examples of biblical truth in action. They each flesh out different aspects of of humility. They're models for us to to follow. And they're from all walks of of life in, in the church. Paul was an apostle. He was a great leader. Timothy was a, was a young pastor in, in training. And then Epaphroditus was an average church member. Just so you don't think that this level of service is only for those in ministry. I mean, you know the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and for a deacon and also for, for an elder in, in Titus. You have to have those marks of, of character in your life if you're set aside as a leader in the church. But... But those aren't just for, for the elders, for everyone. In the same way here, these three men displayed Christ-like character to the Philippians and were to follow them as they follow Christ. That was Paul's goal. So he starts with his own example. And in these two verses, Paul models two biblical components of joyful sacrifice. What does joyful sacrifice look like? How, how does it... How, how, how shoe leather put on it? Well, well Paul gives us this. Do, do, you, do you cringe at the idea of telling someone, follow me as I follow Christ? Well, Paul is not being puffed up or, or, or arrogant. He's pointing to Christ in him. And he gives these two components of joyful sacrifice. The first one is found in the description of sacrificial service, verse 17. And the second is found in, in his delight. In sacrificial serving. Those two things don't seem to go together, do they? Sacrifice and joy. Well, Paul will show us, he'll actually model for us how that, how that happens. Let's look at the first one. The first biblical component to joyful sacrifice is found in the description of Paul's sacrificial service in verse 17. And he says, sacrificial service is poured out and it's poured upon. Look at verse 17, if you would. Paul says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon, there's the poured upon, the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the the same way and share your joy with me. Paul says, I'm being poured out and I'm being poured upon. He says he lived a poured out life and and that was poured out for, for other believers, and, and so should you. And he, he starts by describing what that service looks like. Now, all three of these men, I mean, where does Paul get his object lessons? All three of these men were with him in, in Rome. Obviously, Paul's there. And then the other two, they're all, they're all in Rome together. Paul was imprisoned. Timothy was with Paul. He was serving him. 
And Epaphroditus came from Philippi, uh, Philippi to bring money and, and, and to minister to, to Paul's needs. And what is it that makes Paul begin to, to, to use himself as, a, as an example? Again, this is not because he, he, he's arrogant. Look back at verse 16. Look at what Paul's thinking about. He says, hold fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul has just mentioned the day of Christ. He's, just, he's thinking uh, about standing before the Lord, before the beam of seat of Christ, and giving, giving an account of, of his life and receiving reward. He, he's thinking about standing before uh, for a, a, a judgment seat. And then his mind immediately goes to another judgment seat that he's getting ready to stand before, Nero's. It's very different from the Lord's, obviously. So he starts to think about what will this mean for the Philippians. He's thinking about what, what the Philippians uh, working out their salvation without grumbling and complaining will mean for him before Christ. Now he's thinking about what will him, what will Paul standing before Nero mean for the Philippians? And so at the, the end of his trial, he's either going to be set free to return to, to minister to them, or he'll be killed for his faith in Christ. Regardless of the outcome, live or die, that outcome, Paul says entire, his entire life, his life up to this point, his imprisonment, and whether he lives or dies, that's a sacrificial offering for them. Notice Paul is not simply talking about his death. Look at what it says in verse 17 again. He says, but even if I am uh, being poured out as a drink offering. You've heard that before from Paul. In a very familiar passage, you, you normally hear at, at funerals of faithful believers, right? 2 Timothy 4.6. This verse usually makes people think that Paul's talking about his death here, or only his death. He uses a similar metaphor in 2 Timothy. He says the same thing. But, but notice what he adds. He, he adds the reference to his death. For I am already, Paul says, being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. There's his death. His departure, his death is coming. But right now, I'm already being poured out. My life is a... Is a, is a sacrificial offering. And his offering would be complete when his departure or death comes. Whatever Paul is talking about here, it's something current, it's something ongoing. And he's already told the Philippians, I, I, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, and I think I'm going to live, and, and when I do, it's, it's for your faith, and I'm going to come to see you. So Paul already has said he thinks that he's not going to die. To really grasp what, what Paul intends here... You have to understand the sacrificial system that, that he references. And if you do, then this illustration will come to life, uh, pun intended. The verb poured out here, when Paul says he's poured out upon, it's a very technical word, specifically talking about uh, priestly system. In both Jewish and pagan systems, a person performing a sacrifice would kill an animal, and, and then they would, they would offer that by, by placing that on a, on a burning altar. You're probably very familiar with that. When you hear the word sacrifice, that's probably what you think of. The Old Testament comes flooding back into your mind. But beyond that offering, there was also a secondary offering called a drink offering or a libation. And, and that would be added to the, to the burnt offering, added to the main one. So after pray, placing the burnt offering on the, the altar... 
If a, worship, a worshiper wanted to express greater worship or greater honor, then they would pour a cup of wine or oil on top of the burnt offering. Sometimes it was wine and oil mixed together. And that was a drink offering. It didn't replace the main offering. It complemented the main offering. It was poured over top of the meat to complement it. And the purpose of the drink offering was to commend or make more glorious the primary offering. Now look at what Paul says about his relationship, his ministry, to that of the Philippian believers with that context. Look at verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, a complimentary offering, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I, I rejoice. His ministry was poured out and it was poured upon it. Both are sacrifices. Their sacrifice and His sacrifice come together. And their offering to God, their outward works and activities that came from that offering, Paul says it's combined with, with Him. So when you put all that together, Paul says the Philippians are pictured like an animal strapped to an altar. And Paul says his labor is like the drink offering poured out on top of, of theirs. Their faithful lives were the main, was the main offering that was being consumed. Paul comes along and adds his life to it, and together they're offered for God. And you say, well, what? What was the sacrifice and, and service of the Philippians? Well, Paul's already, he's already went, went over that many times. It, it was their faith. It's the first thing that you offer to God is your faith. And the Holy Spirit even gives you the ability to, to do that. You, your faith is your believing response to a to a promise of God. And Paul says it was their faith that, that he was thanking God for. He added his thanks to, to, to their faith. In verse 6, they sent him a monetary gift. It actually came through Epaphroditus. And, and, then, and then Paul added his service to that. It sustained Paul in prison. And, and so, so their, their gift allowed Paul to, to minister and to preach the gospel to the Praetorian Guard. See how those two things come together? It was their unified lives inside the church that, that was worthy of the gospel that, that Paul said w would give him a reason to rejoice. You don't divide up in, in the church. It was their unflinching testimony outside of the church that was a sign of their salvation and, and uh, their opponent's destruction in verse 28. It was their humble attitude and obedience to Christ and, and, and to do that without grumbling and, and complaining that that accompanied with Paul's pastoral labor is what would give him reason to rejoice in the day of Christ. You see how all of this is, is, is coming together. Faith and giving and unity and holy living, humble obedience. All of that was a sacrifice and a priestly service as part of their Christian life. And it's part of yours as well. What does Romans 12 say? How does it describe your life? 12.1 says, as a believer, you're a living sacrifice. You don't offer a dead animal anymore. When you come to Christ, you offer your whole life. And Paul says the lives of the Philippians, they were exactly like living sacrifice. And Paul says his life was lived to magnify that sacrifice. He lived to complement and complete their service. His ongoing ministry was on behalf of the church to assist theirs. And you and I are either offering ourselves to God or we're helping others in that, in that same offering. Now, what do you think happened 
whenever you had this, this hunk of meat, which was offered as the burnt offering, there's a fire under it. What do you think happened when, when somebody came along and they poured the drink offering over top of it? With, had wine and oil in it, alcohol and, and oil. What happens whenever that hits, whenever that hits the fire? Poof! It's a mixture. It's, it's a drip down over the meat. It flames up in a glorious display. Do you see the imagery here? It's beautiful imagery. As the, and as the altar was hot... And the drink offering then, then, then hits the coals and hits the fire. It disappears in a puff of steam. Paul says, that's what I want my life to be. I want my life is lived out for you to flame up the offering, to make the, your offering more glorious, and then I want it to disappear like a puff of steam. How's that for a humble attitude in Christ-like obedience? Paul says his pastoral service was the same way. It's not the main course. It has the purpose of making their offering more glorious. And then it was poured out and it's gone. How contrary to what you see a lot of times, sadly, in ministry in, in America. Just turn the TV on. Um, it's not, those, a lot of people that you see there, they're not humble sacrifices, just hoping to turn into steam and, and to, to prop somebody else up. They're the main event. Paul says that's not the case. The main event is not the pastor. The main event is Christ and the body coming together in a main offering and a secondary offering. You offer your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord, and that motivates others. Others, It's happening even right now. I come along and equip you as a complement to your sacrifice of being here and living out before the Lord. And then I happily disappear today and go my own way like a puff of steam on the flames of God's altar. And then together, as you apply what God has said, we make a beautiful display, a beautiful sacrifice before the Lord. Paul says that's how I, how I want to live. That's what I, what I live to do. Is that how you think of your service to others? Is that how you think about coming to church? I'm here in order to to magnify, to assist the sacrifice of the faith of someone else? Is it to make someone else's faith look more glorious and then evaporate like steam? One writer said, Paul says his work here was like the museum light placed on the Mona Lisa. The Philippians were the Mona Lisa. He wasn't the painting. He was something that highlighted it. It wasn't to draw attention to the light, but, but to their sacrifice. Paul calls that a, a poured out life. That's the purpose of our personal ministry to others. That's what Ephesians 4 says. And it's also what Hebrews 10.24, the reason that Hebrews 10.24 says that we gather together, those kind of examples motivate others. You know this verse well. Think about it in the context of what Paul's saying here. It's primary and secondary offering coming together all being offered to God, and then, and then that flaming up. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our assembling together as the, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ that Paul's talking about in verse 16. What are we encouraging each other in in that verse? It's the love and good works. We gather together, uh, our primary and secondary sacrifices, encourage each other to, 
come together to excel all the, all the more. Think about that in the sacrificial illustration. Doesn't it encourage you when you see someone else offering a, a genuine sacrificial life before, before the Lord? I was talking to Titus Glick after the first sermon. And he said, you know what? What, uh, what just stands out to me is the peace that genuine believers have when they sacrifice or whenever they, they, they live for the Lord. It's just something is in them that's different, and it's motivating. You think, I want that. And I said, when you say that, my mind goes back to Theta Lewis. The lady was 60-plus years old, dying of cancer, and I'm in my 20s, and I have everything, and I'm supposed to be happy. I think I have all that the world has to offer, and, and I have nothing. And this woman is dying of cancer, and there was something different about her. She radiated the joy of Christ, not based on her circumstances. It was something inward. And, and, and she, even as an unbeliever, she was salty. She made me want whatever that was, even if I couldn't understand it. And Paul says when we come together as believers, we do, we do the same thing. That's why we have to gather together. Now going back to your sacrificial illustration here. Think about standing in line to offer your sacrifice. You come to the temple, you're going to offer your sacrifice to God. You've got your hunk of meat and you're waiting in line to do that. Somebody else is in front of you and their hunk of meat's on the altar. You can't see exactly what the priest is doing or what you're anticipating being able to, to give your offering be, before the Lord. You can't see the primary offering on the altar. But again, what happens when that drink offering is placed there? You ever been sitting in hibachi, really hungry, waiting 30 minutes to be seated, and all of a sudden you see, and you go, man, I'm hungry, I can't wait to get there. It's exactly what's happening. When someone else comes along and lives a sacrificial life, it flames up, and you think, I want that. I can't wait to be able to do the, to do the, the same thing. The flash of flame that rises up. Whenever the drink offering is, is poured on, and you can't wait to get in the front of the line and offer yours. Paul says that's the goal of my life. Paul says that's the reason we have to gather together to magnify the sacrifices of others, to complement the service of my brothers, and to make them look glorious and draw attention to their faith, not my own. And be an example. Is that the goal of your Christian life? I hope so. So what it actually means to live for others. It's not just a Bible bumper sticker, love God, love others. Loving others is not some feeling-based, sentimental association where, where you associate with someone's pain. It's to add the effort of your life to theirs. It's to evangelize them like Paul did Lydia. I mean, think about this church and, and the reason Paul's given this illustration to this church. It's to spend time discipling them like Paul did in Philippi. It's to pray for them like he did. It's to attend church with them and long to be there when, when, when he can't. It's to rejoice with them. It's to give so, so that they, they can be fed. You say, I want to start doing that. I, I, that that's motivating. But I, I don't really know where to start. Well, I would say you start exactly where Paul did. Think about where Paul is right now. He's in prison. And think about the other passage in 2 Timothy that we associate with this drink offering. Paul's at almost at the end of his life, but, but Paul didn't start here, did he? He started somewhere else. He actually didn't even start as Paul. He started as Saul, didn't he? Paul, uh, before he ever became the great apostle, the first thing that he did was he reckoned his old life as, as nothing. 
And then he gave his new life away. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Because Paul tells us exactly about this experience. Before he ever becomes a, becomes a secondary offering, something takes place in, 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 in Paul's life in Philippians chapter, chapter 3. My friend Joel James said what he found most intriguing about verses 17 and 18, this sacrifice that Paul rejoiced over, was that Paul didn't start this way. Paul wasn't born to serve. Paul was born to be served, he said. I mean, you remember Paul's conversion, right? I mean, Saul, he was one of the Jewish elite. He was a rising star in Judaism who was so bold he volunteered to persecute Christians. He, he asked for the opportunity to round up every believer so, so he could eradicate the way. And if there was ever a man with a pedigree for prominence, it was, it was Saul. It was, uh, Saul was born with a silver mezuzah in his mouth, wasn't he? He had the right birth. Look at verse 4 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, um, might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. His birth. He also had a zealous approach. Look at verse 5. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. <clears throat> he also had elite training. Paul says of himself in Acts 22, I am a Jew born in, in Tarsus, brought up in the city, uh, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Paul even had Gentile rights. He had Roman citizenship. Brought recognition to him outside of a Jewish world. Do you remember when Paul planted Philippi in Acts 16? After Lydia, he, he cast the demon out of the slave girl that, that follows him, him around and a riot starts over it. The Gentile authorities imprison Paul and, and they violate his Roman rights doing that. You remember Acts 16? Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come and themselves and bring us out. They want to release Paul. And Paul says, no, you come and unlock the door. You lead me out of the prison. You're the one who violated my rights. And that's exactly what they did. And it said they, they kept begging him to, to, to leave the, lead the city. Most people didn't have those kinds of rights. But look at what Paul says about all those privileges in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So much for demanding your rights today. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Here's where you start and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I, Christ, I lose it all and I gain Christ. If you want to model what Paul says here, you, you want to live a life of a secondary offering, the place you have to start is you have to offer yourself. You forsake your rights and your privileges and all that you trust in, even your life. You'll never put your hands to God's plow if they're full of something else. 
You'll never delight in God if, if your eyes are captured by, by something else. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You won't start serving in a new ministry if you're too busy serving yourself. You, you won't start seminary because you have a full schedule elsewhere. You, you won't sacrifice because you have too much to lose. Paul says you have to forsake the old. And when you do, you'll gain Christ. And when you gain Him, you have no concern about anything else. God may choose to give back whatever you place before Him, but it will be purified by His holy fire at that point. But He doesn't need anything that you bring to the party. In fact, anything that you and I bring to the party is, is rubbish, Paul says. So pouring out your life first means forsaking it. And it also means living a new one for others. And Once Paul or Saul turned aside to his old life, then Paul had a new mission, didn't he? So he describes this forsaking here in chapter 3. But do you remember how he describes his life back in chapter 1? We've already been through that, so I won't make you read it. Remember what Paul says about his life? Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What's the point of life, Paul? I, I, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on the flesh is, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. You see how both concepts come together there, chapter 1? His life was not his own, to live as Christ. But if he goes on living now, it's for their benefit. And over and over, Paul says that his life mattered because it was spent for others. Saul was gone. Paul is now living for others. It's what he told the Corinthians. I, I will most gladly spend and, and be spent for your souls. It's what Peter says. Can you say that? If I go on living, my greatest desire is to live for the benefit of others. Or if the truth be told, is it more like if you go on living, it will mean others will, will serve you? Lord, I live for the benefit of others. I exist to help the little ones grow in Jesus. I, I'm alive to present my wife to Christ as a blameless woman. I, I live to be a helper. To my husband as a wife, I live to disciple, I live to share the gospel. Paul says, don't live for reasons that, that will perish like dry grass around a, around a burn pile. Paul says his life was, was the oil and wine poured over other believers' service and sacrifice. He was the complement, not the main source. As a match exists to burn, not as fire itself, but to ignite it. So Paul existed. Joel James. Let me give you the second component. Because not only does your service compound when it's added to others, your joy does as well. The second component, turn back to chapter 2, look at verse 18. They are really the end of verse 17. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Rejoice, rejoice, joy, joy. That's the theme of this passage. Paul says he delights in sacrificial serving. And he says it's combined. His joy is combined with theirs. And he says it's contagious. 
That's what he says in verses 17 and 18. The second component of joyful sacrifice is to delight in it. And that's just as vital as the, as, as the first. The first component is sacrifice itself. And the second is the joy that you get from it, and that's really the key. This is the same word that Jesus used in the parable of the lost sheep. The man rejoices whenever he finds the one, and he leaves the 99. It's the same word that he uses for the woman who finds the, the lost coin that she lost. It's an intensified form of joy. And it's significant to note that the description of Paul's service is the short part of this verse. Because that's not the main point. Paul's circumstances of his sacrificial service is he's being poured out as a drink offering, and those circumstances, that's what he rejoices in, the benefit that that brings to the Philippians. And that's not something that you would think that you would rejoice in. You wouldn't think you'd delight in that. But Paul says he does. What's the point? Paul is not simply calling here for cold, calculated service. He's calling for joyful service service. When you serve, is it joyful? When both of those things are combined together, joyful service, uh, delightful sacrifice, that's what makes it Christian. The adjective is what makes it Christian. P.T. O'Brien says, this is not just a call to serve, it's a, it's a call to Christian serving. Anyone can serve. But what makes it Christian is it's for Christ and it's with joy. Those two things together Make it Christian serving. I mean, many religions around the world call for sacrifice and service, literal or symbolic. You have to give something of value to God as an offering, and you lose something valuable uh, to show God that you're really serious. And the greater the value, the greater the sacrifice that you have, the more it hurts, then, then, then the more you get from God. That's how most religious systems work. Some people live their Christian lives, sadly, the same way. If it makes me feel bad, then it must be spiritual. <laughs> and if it feels good, then it can't be godly. That's the way people live their Christian life. Nothing could be further from the truth. The unique aspect of Christianity is sacrifice is mingled with joy. It was for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. You're not some person that enjoys pain. Just like James says, you don't count it all joy in the trials. You count joy what it adds up to, the maturity of your faith. Jesus adds an adjective to your activity of sacrifice. And if, you're, don't have, if you don't have both, then you're not following the model of Paul here. And sadly, I can look in my life, and you might be able to look in yours, and, and you can say, I've got the sacrifice part right, but I don't have the joy part. And so Paul says here, I rejoice and I share my joy with you. It's, it's combined. And it becomes Christian serving when you do it for the Lord and when you do it for, for joy. You know the Bible says in Psalm 102? You don't just serve, you serve with gladness. You don't just give. God doesn't just want a giver, as I heard one preacher say. He wants a cheerful giver, right? You see how those two things come together? You don't just suffer loss, you, you suffer loss with joy. You don't just sacrifice, you, you rejoice. Listen to how Paul describes the, this Christian paradox in 2 Corinthians 6. 
He says, as, un as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and, and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet rejoicing, as poor and yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul is not calling you here to give more and, uh, or make more bricks with less straw. He's saying that while you're making the bricks, whether you have straw or not, whistle a tune. I mean, that's, that's the joy of Christ in in your heart. And there's a difference, isn't there? Don't hear this message and think I need to sacrifice more. Here if I'm sacrificing and I trudge through it all the time, there's a deeper problem. You might need to go to Philippians chapter 3 because your eyes might have been directed away from the true treasure to, to the trinkets. You say, how can that be? How can on the one hand I give something up and then on the other hand I'm happy about it? It's because you're not really losing anything. As a believer, you've, you've already given yourself to the, to the Lord and the trade, in the trade, you get God. You understand that in Christianity? What you give away is your, your sinful, depraved life that cannot please God. And what you get in return is, is, is Christ, is God. It's the great exchange. It's described in the, in the parable of the soils. Or, I mean, in the, in the parable of the, of the field, the hidden treasure in the field, where Jesus says that, that when you get the gospel, you understand that it's true treasure. It's buried in a field. You'll give up anything. Just, just let me have what's buried in the field. You don't care about the trinkets whenever you have the gold. And a believer's greatest joy is to give their, their new life to God. I, I can remember listening as an unsaved man to Christians explain what it was like to, to live for Christ. And I can remember thinking, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I become a Christian. Because then I have to give up everything I enjoy. See, I was never under the delusion that I could have both worlds. I could have my sin and the Savior. I mean, I, I knew I had to forsake my sin in order to have Christ... But I don't want to forsake my sin. When I finally did, when I came to Christ, I, I totally understood what they meant. I totally understood how Theta Lewis could have cancer and still have joy and not fear death. Because in Christ, you start living the way that you were made, and there's no greater joy. It doesn't really feel like a sacrifice because, because you gain way more than, than you lose. G. Walter Hansen said, a believer's greatest joy comes at the to the point of his greatest sacrifice. Can you hear that in, in Paul's words? The end of chapter 3. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And, and that I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible. I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I, I want to be with him. And most people experience happiness or joy. What they experience is only what the world offers, and it's fool's gold. It's trinkets. It's trash. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. When things are favorable or good, they're happy, and when they're not, they're, they're not. But a believer finds satisfaction in the Father's will and in the, his children's welfare. But you can't have that and hold on to your sin. You must forsake your old life in order to receive a new one. Because whoever 
lives for Christ no longer lives for his own interests. No longer finds happiness there. Don MacArthur said, it's difficult for self-centered people to understand how missionaries can live for years under primitive, demanding, and often dangerous conditions and yet maintain their joy. It's because they, like Paul, learned the secret. Self-sacrifice for Christ is a sacrifice only in the sense of being an offering to God. It's never a sacrifice in the sense of being a loss because you have the true treasure. And you can't give anything away to the Lord that's not replaced with something infinitely more valuable. God takes you, God takes nothing from you as a loss. He gives you what's truly valuable. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says the same thing to Colossians. And now he invites Philippians to share in that joy. I rejoice in being a secondary offering. I rejoice in second place. You don't hear the word say that, do you? Paul says, I'm happy about that. And it's combined with you. I I invite you to share in my joy. And then I command you to do the same thing. Look at verse 18. Here's the contagious part. It's combined. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me. It's contagious. Joy can be shared and joy is contagious. You ever been around somebody whenever you're down and they're... Their joy gets all over you. Sacrificial service is contagious, so is joy. Paul says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then he turns that back around. You say, what does that mean? How does that happen? How is joy contagious? How is joy contagious? What is Paul saying to the Philippians here? Let me explain it to you this way. Have you ever tried recently to watch some of the modified sporting events during COVID. Baseball with no fans. You ever seen that? Hockey with empty empty seats. It just feels incomplete, doesn't it? It's because it is. I mean, they're even trying to pump noise, fan noise in to, to keep the guys in rhythm. No matter how hard they try, sports without fans will never work because it's a participatory sport. The players feed off of the fans. The fans cheer and rejoice at, uh, when the players accomplish whatever they're accomplishing. Paul says it's the same way with joyful service. It's the same way in the church. Just like part of the enjoyment of going to a baseball game is sharing it with others and hearing the fans scream and, as one said, high-fiving your bro- brothers, sharing joy with others as you serve together as part of Christian service. It's also the reason that you have to fellowship face-to-face in a gathering, it's necessary to gather and be part of the, of the church. You only get part of it whenever you watch it on live stream. Understand that that's something that you might have to do temporarily, but you long to be here. Paul says we must be together. And when you are, there's something about hearing a sermon preached live with other people and the fellowship afterwards and, and the changes that, 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 are, that are dynamic. Many of you have been watching Dr. MacArthur. I watched him intently when he was preaching to an empty auditorium, and I was relating to him. If you watched him preach then, I mean, it's John. He's preaching the Word. But have you watched him preach to a full auditorium? I don't want to talk about the, the picture. I mean, there is like a pep in that man's step. It's like 
one final battle before the old line goes home. And I can remember preaching to an empty auditorium, and I can remember the feeling of believers being back in here. There's something that happens in the preaching event with people, and there's something that happens when you gather together with other believers, and they share their joy, and you share your joy, and it comes together in something beautiful before the Lord. Paul says when other Christians rejoice around, your, your joy increases as well. My friend Joel said, What would it be like if you went to a football game in the fourth quarter, 20 seconds left on the clock, and your team is fourth and three on the three-yard line, and your team scores a touchdown, they win the game, and whenever they do, there's nobody else there but you. Or there's other people there, but you have to sit on your hands and do nothing and, and, and say nothing. You can't cheer, you can't do anything. Would that be fun? The fun is the yelling and the screaming with your friends. We don't yell and, and scream, but we do share joy. And when you hear other believers sacrificing, I mean really giving their life for Christ in the midst of, of that suffering, their, their singing motivates you, doesn't it? Serving becomes Christian when it's done for Christ and it's done with joy. And that is combined with others and it's contagious. You can't grudgingly serve because that's not true Christian service. And you can't serve without joy because it doesn't accomplish what God intends. It's not beneficial to others. And that's what sacrifice is all about. It's all about others. So let me ask you, to what extent do you find joy in highlighting the faith and the service and the gifts of others? Their sacrifice. I mean, when somebody else gets the credit... Um, and you help them do it. Is there something inside that says, hey, what about me? Or do you genuinely rejoice? Is your desire to be poured over top of their life and disappear like steam in God's fire? Why do we struggle serving with joy? I think the key is probably we, don't, we haven't done what Paul described in chapter 3. We haven't died to ourselves. We're still holding on the trinkets of the world. When I find serving hard, or it's grinding, it's typically because I'm thinking about something else or myself. And yet because Paul and the Philippians had both served and sacrificed together, they were able to rejoice together, and that was a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Lord. Won't you bow your heads? First example, truth lived out, is found in the Apostle Paul, joyful sacrifice. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like me, as an unsaved man, thinking, the Christian life doesn't look all that fun. I don't really want to give up my sin. If you're trying to rationalize it, You'll never get there. Because as long as you hold on to your sin, you can't have the Savior. You must turn from your wicked ways and turn to Christ. And once that happens, then all of the, the storehouse of, of joy comes flooding in. There's a new life, a new desire, a new want to. 
you're struggling to, to try to prop up your Christian life with, with only just more bricks, you need to let God put a tune in your heart. And the only way that comes is to, focusing on, is to focus on what really, what really is valuable. You need to go back to the Lord. Paul and the Philippians served and sacrificed, and they had joy. And God wants you to have that too. And joy comes in being second. And as you are, He'll fill you with truth and joy. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Do now what I cannot do. Your Holy Spirit can take your piercing word and it can break through all of the, the discouragements and all of the deceptions and all of the roadblocks that we put in the way and it can just pierce us completely through and put its finger on exactly what it is in our life that we must forsake, that we must repent of. The issue that's there, do that even now and then help people turn from it to humbly forsake it and the moment that happens, joy unspeakable and full of glory will flood in. But until, until that happens, Father, if they'll not turn loose of their sin, or whatever it is that they have in place of you, misery, pain, suffering awaits. Oh God, may you show them true treasure today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.